0: We're back again, and we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 10. We're slowly working our way through the book of Revelation. Well, I say slowly, actually, we're moving at a pretty rapid pace when you think about it. Uh, When I taught Revelation years ago, I think I took two or three years to go through the book. So you can take a a long, long time. Um, The only problem, there are benefits and disadvantages to taking that long. You can dig deep into every verse And you can really do a lot of cross-reference and you can really do a lot of uh, developing various themes that are running through the book. But the problem is by the time you get to the end of the book, you forget what was at the beginning. So there's kind of a happy balance between going too slow and going too fast. So we're going to start in Revelation 10 and verse 1. And I'll just once again ask the Lord to bless our time together if you'll join me at the throne of grace. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the privilege and the opportunity, uh, especially in this time when the days are so dark and evil and there is uh, so much contrary to your word going on in the world around us, for us to be able to gather together and have the freedom still to do what many people in the world only do at the risk of their life or their freedom, to come together this evening in this home, to have the opportunity to sing praises to you and to open your word and feed on the wonderful bread of life. So, Father, as we open your word tonight, may God the Holy Spirit take control of our time together, guide our thoughts and our words, let the word of God come alive to us, and help us to grow in grace and truth that we may become more conformed to the image of Your Son and our Savior. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. In Revelation chapter 10, actually running from verse 1 of chapter 10 to 11-14, we have another interlude. I think I've gone through this before and... Because all of you have notes, and these notes were done some years ago, uh, they'll become part of the notes of the New Testament that we're printing up. But obviously there are things that I add as I continue to study. So since you have the notes and a lot of references, I'm not going to try to go over all of those. You can read those. But I will try to add some things that are not in your notes, and you may want to have a pen handy to jot those down. And the first thing is that there are three interludes in the book of Revelation. And the first one is in chapter 7 where we see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And then of course toward the end of the chapter we see the great multitude of those that they have brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. We're in the second interlude here from verse 1 of chapter 10 through chapter 11 and verse 14. And here we have the mighty angel, the little book, and the two witnesses. Uh, It's almost as if in the intensity of the outpouring of the judgments that are going on in the book of Revelation, it's almost as if John feels a need to give us a little bit of a break. But it's really more than just a literary technique. It's to show us things that are going on behind the scenes so that we understand why what's happening on the the earth is happening. And then the third interlude is in chapters 12 through 14. And here we have the woman, the Antichrist, and the Lamb of God on Mount Zion. The woman, the Antichrist, and the Lamb of God. And it's very interesting that... Starting at this point, up until now, in the first nine chapters, we've been dealing primarily with events. Judgments poured out on the earth, things that are happening on the earth. From this point forward, we're going to start looking more at individual persons or personalities. And I'll give you a list of seven of those in just a moment. But let's go ahead and just get into the first few verses here. Uh, Let me read the first seven verses here and I'll make a few comments John says I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven by the way where was John the last time we saw him he was in heaven right he was showing us scenes of what's going on in heaven following the rapture of the church he's now changed positions he's back on earth and he sees the angel coming down So I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. We'll touch on those in a moment. He had a little book open in his hand. I take this to be the same book that we saw in chapter 5, the sealed book, uh, the title deed to the earth. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So you can imagine how colossal this figure appeared to John. Uh, we see angels appearing in various forms as we go through Scripture. Uh, oftentimes they appear as mighty angels. Sometimes they appear as warriors, as in 2 Kings chapter 6. You'll remember when the Syrian army surrounded Elisha. He prayed that God would open the eyes of his servants so that he could see the angelic army surrounding him. And it's good for us to remember that that army always surrounds us as well. Sometimes they would appear uh, simply as individuals maybe not even recognized as angels until the time (coughs) passed. But here we have an angel that is colossal in stature and he puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, being a good scribe, John tells us in verse four, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things that the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw in verse 5, standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it. We know, of course, that that's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. So very quickly, remember that Revelation is a book of signs. Uh, John tells us at the very beginning of the book that the Lord Jesus Christ sent and signified this book to him. The word signified is one of John's favorite words. He uses it a lot in the Gospel of John. It's the word Sameon. Remember that there are three different words that are used for miracles. There is miracle, which speaks of a supernatural event. Uh, There is wonders. Uh, Wonders emphasizes more the effect that it has on the people. They're stunned and astounded. And then there's sign. Uh, Sign indicates a spiritual event or, excuse me, a, a physical appearance or a physical event that has a spiritual meaning behind it. Example being the first sign that Jesus performed uh, was at the wedding of Cana. And you remember he turned water into wine. Well, it was a, a physical miraculous event, but behind it was a spiritual meaning. And of course, it was demonstrating to the people his power to create something new out of something common. And the picture, of course, is what he does for us in regeneration. So... The mighty angel comes and we see these various signs. And I want you to notice four here. The clouds, of course, speak of the glory of God. We know that from Exodus 19.16. In Matthew 17.5, you'll remember at the transfiguration, uh, they were enveloped in a cloud. The rainbow is familiar, of course, as a picture of God's faithfulness. It first appears in Genesis 9.12 and 13. And, of course, the rainbow has been stolen from us. uh, But the rainbow that they use is not the rainbow of the Bible. Did you know that? The rainbow of the Bible has how many colors? Five. Anybody know how many colors in the rainbow? Seven. 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 There are seven colors in the rainbow. Seven is what? It's God's number of perfection. Did you know that all of the seven colors in the rainbow come from three primary colors? Red, yellow, and blue. Those are the dominant colors. And all of those three colors come from one color, which is light. I don't know if you're aware that light has three properties. Those three properties are luminiferous, calorific, and actinic. Luminiferous is the light, calorific is the heat, and actinic is something you can't see. Uh, We would uh, look, for example, at the infrared rays. So the interesting thing is, what does the scripture say? God is light. Well, how many persons are there in that light? There's three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From one light come the three. From the three comes the seven the perfection of the rainbow, the whole thing is a picture of the essence of God. Uh, Of course, in the time that we're living in, when uh, the gays and everybody else have chosen the rainbow as their symbol, it's actually because of their defiance against God. And they use six colors, and six in Scripture is what? It's the number of man. And there's significance in the one color that they leave out, but I'm not going to go into that at this point. So the rainbow, of course, being very significant. Then we have the sun. Christ, of course, is the light of the world. He's called the son of righteousness in Malachi 4.2. You remember Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9.3, saw a bright light shining brighter than the sun when Jesus revealed himself to him. And then, of course, uh, again, when Jesus was transfigured, he glowed. Brighter than the sun in Matthew 17 too. feet of fire. We've seen before in Revelation 115 uh, feet of bronze or feet of fire. Always speak of judgment. So there's judgment coming. So we see the glory of God. We see the faithfulness of God. We see the light of God, but we also see the need for judgment. You know, a lot of people, when they talk about God, they say, well, my God is a God of love. Well, that's nice, but we need to understand that when we look at the essence of God, there are several different things that are critical to understanding the nature or the essence of God, love being only one of them. And it's important to understand that none of those areas of essence or character counteract or contradict the others. They always complement one another. So love and justice, love and righteousness Complement one another. And we see all of that, of course, at the cross when the love of God put the sins of the world on the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who reject him, justice demands that there be a penalty. So then in verse 2, the little scroll, as I said, I take this to be the seven sealed book. And of course, uh, this book proclaims the right of Jesus Christ to all creation. Uh, because he is the creator. Uh, The voice of the angel as the voice of a lion. We know that Jesus is the lion of Judah in Revelation 5.5. The seven peals of thunder are used in other places in scripture. You might look at Psalm 29, 3 through 9, Uh, but John is not allowed to record what they write. You know, it's very interesting that Paul says that he went into heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and When he came back, he was not permitted to write the things that he saw. He said he saw and heard things that it is not permitted for a man to speak. There are certain things that belong to God and certain things that belong to us. And this is one of the reasons I'm always skeptical when people write books and say I went to heaven for 90 minutes and they give you a detailed description of everything that they see. And uh, you just have to color me a skeptic at that point in verses 5 through 7, the angel declares that the plan of God is finished. Now, sometimes we wonder, and we always... Uh, Or often hear people say, well, people have been saying that the end of the world or the rapture of the church is coming for years and it's never happened. Now it's no different than it was then. Well, it's very interesting that Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that that's exactly what the skeptics would say. Two thousand years ago, he told us people would be saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, everything remains as it was from the beginning. Well, it doesn't remain the same as it was from the beginning. They're forgetting the flood, they're forgetting the Tower of Babel, they're forgetting the whole history of the nation of Israel, and of course, most importantly, the coming of Christ into the world. You know, Peter Stoner took just eight prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ, he was a mathematician. I think I've used this illustration before. Some of you may not have been here. As a mathematician, he set out, he said, if I can disprove these eight prophecies concerning Christ, written between hundreds and thousands of years before Christ came, if I can prove that these prophecies were not fulfilled in Christ, I will be able to disprove Scripture. He was an atheist. Well, he ended up, as atheists often do when they set themselves on a project like that, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And his conclusion was that with only eight specific prophecies, the time of his coming, the place of his birth, the fact that he would come out of Egypt, that he would be raised in Nazareth, all of those things, he said with only eight prophecy, prophecies, the chance of those being fulfilled by chance or coincidence was one in ten to the 17th power. So that's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Now, in order to explain it to people like us who are not mathematicians, he said, let me put it in perspective for you. If you covered the state of Texas, I think he said a foot deep. If you covered the state of Texas a foot deep with silver dollars and marked one of them and sent someone into the state of Texas and they were able to reach down and pick up that coin, that would equal one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, that's only dealing with eight prophecies. There are over 300 prophecies of the first coming of Christ alone. And of course, interestingly, there are around 500 concerning his second coming. There's much more prophecy concerning his second coming. And of course, the book of Revelation is all about that. So the plan of God is about to be finished. He says that the mystery of God is going to be finished. Why does he call it a mystery? In the New Testament, mystery is a word that is used for things that were not revealed in the Old Testament. In other words, they were unknown prior to the time that they were revealed to Paul, to John, to the other New Testament apostles. And I've given you a list here. And these mysteries remind us, and you might want to just jot this down in the uh, side of your notes there, These mysteries remind us of a very important principle of Scripture, which is progressive revelation. Progressive revelation tells us that from the beginning of the book of Genesis until the end of the book of Revelation, there are new things that are being revealed. And this is why we couldn't expect people in... Job's time to understand what we would expect people to do to know and understand in Daniel's time. We wouldn't expect Daniel to understand things that they would have understood in the time of Jesus or the time of Paul. And of course, you and I have the benefit because not only do we have the finished book. But we have all kinds of works like this one right here from hundreds and hundreds of years of scholars that have studied and poured over the Scripture. And they've left us records of the uh, things that they've found. By the way, it never troubles me when I read a book like that and I find someone uh, maybe weak in an area or even wrong in an area. Because believe it or not, and I probably shouldn't tell you this lest you stone me, all of us have some error in our understanding. We all lack a bit of understanding. You know, there are some people that are masters in the area of prophecy. They know very, very little in the area of practical day-to-day doctrine. There are other people who have focused their attention on the practical aspects of living the Christian life, and they're going to be weak in the area of prophecy or other things. So uh, never be upset, or as you study uh, and you read a guy and you find areas of lack, for example, Adam Clark, uh, very, very great uh, Bible student, uh, just realize the guy lived 300 years ago. How much more advantage do we have now? I think I'm right on the date on his life, but there are many, many that have written that we take advantage of. So when the Bible talks about mystery, the word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament. Four of those times is in the book of Revelation, one of them being here. And so... Again, I'm not going to go over all these. You have them in your notes. You have the references. There's the mystery of godliness, which is Christ manifest in the flesh. The mystery of Israel's blindness, which explains what God's doing with Israel in the, at the current time. The mystery of the church, where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The mystery of the rapture, the bride of Christ. Uh, this is the next stage of the fulfillment of God's plan. The mystery of iniquity will be the revelation of Antichrist. Mystery Babylon, we're going to come into that in Revelation 17, refers to the end time system that is a religious, economic, military conglomerate. And then, of course, the mystery of God in Revelation 10:7, our text, which is talking about the conclusion of his plan for human history up to the second coming of Christ. So reading on in verse eight, then the voice, which I heard from heaven, spoke to me again and said, go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people and nations and tongues and kings. What in the world is this all about? There are a few other passages that we need to look into. So if you will, hold your place here. Turn with me back to Jeremiah 15. As I've mentioned to you several times, the book of Revelation cannot be understood without constantly referencing the Old Testament and comparing it to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 15. Oh Lord, uh, this, by the way, is a passage where Jeremiah is pouring out his complaint to God. He has been horribly persecuted, he has been rejected by his own family. Uh, He lost the love of his life. He was commanded by God not to marry. Uh, One thing after another, after another, his isolation, the hostility of the people against him, and he's pouring out his heart to God. So in verse 15, he says, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I ate them. Now he's figuratively speaking about the study of God's word. You often hear me use the phrase feeding on the bread of life. Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jeremiah says, I ate them and your word, (laughs) excuse me, your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts other words, as I began to study the scriptures that were written at that time, once again, the principle of progressive revelation. He didn't have all that we have. But as he studied it, he found it to be a source of great joy. Verse 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers. Why? Because it brought about a separation in his life. While his friends remember he was very young when he became a prophet. And while his friends were enjoying life and being entertained and having parties, he separated himself. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. In other words, he was concerned about the direction his nation was going. And you know, of course, at the end of Jeremiah's ministry, the nation went into the Babylonian captivity. He says in verse 18, Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream and as waters that fail? In other words, God, are you going to be unfaithful to me? Is all of my hope and all of my expectation going to be disappointed? Is all of the joy that I found in your word just going to turn to nothing but bitterness? So God speaks to him in verse 19. Maybe you've experienced something similar to this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, this is what we refer to as repentance. If you return, then I will bring you back. In other words, I'll restore you, and you will stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth, Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. In other words, there's a time that we go after people. There's a time when we seek them, but there's a time when we have to stop. And it's only if they come back that they're going to get the truth. I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. So what we see here is his initial response to the truths that he learned was sweet as honey. But as he digested that truth and as it went to work in his life and as it changed the way he saw the world around him, there was a great bitterness. And I think all of us, see that and all of us experience that. We love to gather together. We love to open the word. We love to study it together. But as we walk out into this world and we look around in light of the things that we're learning, there's a bitterness in our soul of the things that are going on. If you would turn with me to Ezekiel, another example. Turning toward the back of the book. Ezekiel chapter 3. I'm actually going to back up to uh, verse 9 of chapter 2. Ezekiel says, When I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Sound familiar? Then he spread it out before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. Written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. And once again, the idea is that the teacher has to consume what he's going to teach before he can teach it. And it's just like the athlete. The athlete feeds the body the things that are necessary to build strength, to build speed, to build endurance. But there comes a point when that which is eaten has to be put into motion and into practice. Jeremiah, or Ezekiel says here in verse 2, So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness." You see the parallels here. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Now you would think if the word is sweet in his mouth, he's going to have a nice message, right? No. Verse 5, For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. In other words, you're going to your own people. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent you to them they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them nor dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. I just was teaching recently at a conference and I can't think of anything I said that was controversial, but there were two couples that something I said struck a chord and they jumped up and they walked out. And they walked out with looks like you know, we're leaving because we disagree with whatever you said, which doesn't bother me at all. You know, that's they stand accountable and so do I. So He says in verse 10, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears and go get to the captives, to the children of your people and speak to them. Remember, he's in Babylon. He's with the captives. Jeremiah is before the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel is in the captivity. And he is speaking to people who are now under severe divine discipline. The wrath of God has been poured out on Israel. And they're still rebellious kind of like America. We see judgment increasing. We see the evidences of God's wrath coming down on this country over and over and over again. And yet, the nation as a whole simply closes their eyes and continues to go their way. So he says, go to them whether they hear or whether they refuse. So... The point as we come back to Revelation is John is doing what Jeremiah and Ezekiel had done before him. And one other passage, I won't turn to it, but you might want to jot down Ezra 7.10. Ezra gives us an example of what a good teacher does. In Ezra 7.10, it tells us that Ezra sought to know the law of the Lord and then to do it and then to teach it to the children of Israel. He sought to know it, then to do it, and then to teach it. You know, isn't it interesting? When, John, when uh, Luke begins the book of Acts, do you remember how he begins it, talking about the ministry of Jesus? He says, the former treatise, speaking of the gospel of Luke, I have written, O Theophilus, a nobleman that he was sharing the gospel message with, of all that Jesus began, what's the next word? To do and to teach. To do and to teach. We do first, then we teach. Right? So Ezra is an example of that to us. That brings us to chapter 11. If we can cover the next 14 verses, I'll be happy. We'll be through this particular... What did I call it earlier? Interlude, yes. I mentioned earlier from chapter 11 forward and actually beginning in chapter 10, the focus shifts from events and judgment to the main actors. I want to give you eight of the main actors that we're going to see in the chapters ahead. Eight of the main actors. The first, we're going to see two prophets. Second, we're going to see the woman. That's the nation of Israel. Third, we're going to see the child. The child that was born and caught up to heaven. Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is particularly looking at him in the past, in his virgin birth, life, death, and resurrection. Fourth, we're gonna see the dragon. Fifth, we're gonna see two beasts. And these are two men. Sixth, we're gonna see the great harlot. And then seventh, we're going to see Jesus Christ triumphant. So these seven main actors, Christ, of course, always being the main actor. If you want three passages where we're going to see him, Revelation 12:5, the child that's born, Revelation 14:1, the champion on Mount Olive, Mount of Olives, and then Revelation 19:11 to 16. We're going to see him in the second coming. All right, so John is now given a read, Verse 1. Then I was given a read like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. I want to just point something out here. There are two words for temple in the New Testament. Aaron... I can write them in English. The Aaron refers to the temple complex. In other words, the whole thing. Then there's the word naos. That refers to the Holy of Holies. You say, what's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. And the big difference here is that the word for temple here is the Holy of Holies. And why is that important to you and I? Well, it's important to you and I because Na'as is the word that is used for your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Your body is the Holy of Holies. Doesn't use He'erwan, use Na'as. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 3.16. You'll also find it in 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20. And I find it very interesting that where our body is called the Holy of Holies. Never forget, the temple had three parts, didn't it? Had the outer court, And then you had... This is a picture of the tabernacle, but the temple was built on that. Then you have the holy place... And then you have the Holy of Holies. Many people could come to the outer court. Only the priest could go into the holy place. But only one went into the Holy of Holies because that was the place where God dwelt. And the only one allowed in there was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. When you stop and think that at the moment of your salvation God created in you as we're told in 2 Corinthians 5:17 a new creature in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new literally a new creation. When Paul talks about the new man, this is what he's talking about. But the outer court is analogous to our body. And everyone can see our body. It's open to the world. The holy place is analogous to our soul. Not everyone sees our soul. We don't reveal ourselves to everyone. We only open up our soul to those that we trust, those we have rapport with, uh, those that we feel are sympathetic to us. But this is something that is specifically the place where we meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll remember in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24, he tells us that when God did the work of regeneration in our soul and he created that new creature in Christ, it was created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What that means, and this will make sense to you when you get into the first epistle of John, and John says, that which is born of God cannot sin. And that's been a stumbling block to to a lot of believers because they say, wait a minute, I'm born of God and yet I sin. That's not what John's talking about. What John's talking about is this part of your being. There is a part of you that is incapable of sin. There is a part of you that sin will never touch. And that is that new creature. In which the reason that God had to create that new creature is because we needed a place where the Holy Spirit could dwell. The Spirit of God cannot dwell in sin. He can only dwell in a holy place. And so that new spirit, I take the position that prior to salvation, we are dichotomous. In other words, we have a body and a soul. We're spiritually dead. At the moment of salvation, we become trichotomous. We now have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And it's in that new created spirit, that new man, that the Holy Spirit dwells. So when you and I make a decision... To commit an act of sin, this area is simply sealed off. Nothing touches it, but we're not acting in accordance with the perfect plan and will of God. This is why we need to utilize confession for cleansing and restoration, which opens the doors of the Holy of Holies so the Spirit of God can again be able to work from us. Remember that everything the world tries to do to get us to conform. Paul uses the distinction between conforming and transforming. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word conformity refers to outward conformity. It's an imitation. In other words, everyone's doing it, so let's go along. Let's just modify our behavior or our conduct so that we get along with everyone else. That's conformity. But transformation is something different. Transformation is when the inside comes out. The word that's used of Jesus being transfigured is the very same word Paul uses in Romans 12 to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. So the world tries to influence us from the outside in. This is what we call peer pressure. It's the pressure on the outside. It's the daily news reports. It's the media that constantly demands our attention. It's the way of the world, society around us, the culture in which we live is all pushing to get into the inner man. But when the Spirit of God works, He works from the inside out. And that's what we call transformation. So that's kind of a long explanation here, but I think worthwhile to see what's going on here with this temple. He's told in verse 2 to leave out the court on the outside of the temple. Uh, The outer court, of course, was the court of the Gentiles. Do not measure it. It has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Well, 42 months in verse 2 is... Two hundred and sixty day uh, one thousand two hundred and sixty days in verse three, and they both work out to three and a half years. That's very important for us. And why is that? Because the only time that we are given a strict three and a half year period is when it's in the last half of the tribulation. We know now where we are. You remember that the tribulation period, which lasts for seven years, and Jesus gives a beautiful outline of all this in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, you have tribulation in Matthew 24 9. In the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years on each side. You have the abomination of desolation. That comes in Matthew 24, verse 15. And then that's followed by what's called the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is going to be 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. So that helps us because now we know when these two witnesses are going to be witnessing. God never leaves himself without a witness. There is always someone or some entity that is going to be around to proclaim the truth. And of course this reminds us that there are four waves of evangelism during the tribulation period and I'm not sure if you have those written down. I think they may have been somewhere Uh, They're actually on page 42. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists, followed by the converts of the 144,000, followed by the two witnesses, which we have here in Revelation 11, followed by an angelic evangelist in Revelation 14. Think about this. Even though the tribulation is the most horrible time in human history and the time of the greatest judgments in human history, it will also be the time of the greatest evangelism the world has ever known. People are going to be coming to Christ by the billions, literally. And it's very interesting because now we have a population of roughly 8 billion people. And it might interest you to know that there are more people alive on the earth right now than the number of all the people born from the time of Jesus Christ to the present time. Just ponder on that for a while. More people alive on the globe right now than all the people born from the time of Christ up to the present. The opportunities for evangelism are huge. And God is going to make sure that people have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Verse 4 says, These are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Uh, If you go back to Zechariah uh, chapter 4 up through verse 11, you'll see that this picture has been used before. It was used of Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the civil leader. Uh, They were called the anointed ones, or literally in the Hebrew, the sons of oil. And so we have two witnesses that are now the olive trees and the lampstands standing before God. Verse 5 says, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. I wish I had that power sometimes. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they want. Uh, the question is always, what is the identity of these witnesses? Various people have been suggested. Uh, I'm uh, convinced that it's Moses and Elijah for many, many reasons, primarily because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets and Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. But also when he was transfigured, you'll remember they met him on the Mount of Transfiguration and it said that they were talking to him about what? About his departure. The Greek word departure in that verse is Exodus, the way out. So they were talking to him about the way out. Why? Because they had a role to play yet in the future. Uh, If you hold to other views, uh, we won't argue about it uh, because they're not named. So we're just satisfied with that. I want you to notice very carefully, and this is important because Nan and I think of this every time we go on a mission. You know, I've had so many people go with us on mission trips and some have done extremely well and some have surprised us and done far beyond what we expected. Uh, Quite frankly, some have been an absolute drag. But I always tell people, if you want to go to us, prepare to die. Don't go, go with us if you're not willing to lay your life down. You know, we hear all the time that there are closed areas where you can't take the gospel. That's not true there isn't a closed place on the face of the earth. There are just places where it's costly. There are places where it's difficult, where it can be very risky. But there has to be that willingness. If you're going to go, you're going into harm's way. You put yourself into the hands of God. You trust Him to put that hedge of protection around you. But we know something, and it relates to us right here in verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this is Antichrist, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Key phrase, when they finish their testimony. The believer pursuing the plan of God is invincible until their work is done. The enemy can hurt us. He can make life difficult for us. He can afflict us in a million different ways, but he cannot take us out until our job is done. When the job is done, it's time to go home. And so these two are killed. But amazing things happen. There's, uh, this is, people often call this the devil's Christmas. Verse 8 said, "...their dead bodies lie in the street of the city." which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. It's a reference to Jerusalem. Sodom because of their sexual perversion. Egypt because of their idolatry. Where also our Lord was crucified. So for three days these bodies are laying there. And verse 9 says those from the people, tribes, tongues, nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Now notice verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because the two prophets that tormented those who dwell on the earth. So the devil's Christmas. Do you realize that we live in the first time that this would have been possible for the whole world to watch this? You know, CNN and Fox News and all of them are going to have their teams on the ground. They're going to be showing, hey, these guys that were making us miserable, by the way, why did they torment them? There's nothing more tormenting to the soul of the hardened unbeliever than to be told that one day they're going to give an account to God. To them, that's torment. And that's why our world hates the gospel. It's why our world hates the truth. And believe it or not, all of the things that are going on in our country right now are not about what they say they're about. They're all about, sooner or later, pointing the finger and making the target of the Christian. They hate Christ. They hate the Word of God. And therefore... You know, the smart attack is not the frontal attack. The smart attack is always the attack from the flanks. And so what they're doing is they're building a case... That if you don't go along with this, you're not loving, you're not kind, you're not accepting, you're not tolerant. And isn't it funny how it all started out with us being asked to be tolerant. And when we were tolerant, then they start demanding not just that we be tolerant, but we must share their ideology. If you don't go along with our ideology, you are hateful, you are... Uh, destructive you are mean you are cruel on and on and on and on down the line so you can see how the world would celebrate the death of these prophets but it's not going to last notice verse 11 after the three and a half days the breath of life from god entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them if you thought you finally won a victory over these two witnesses, these two prophets of God, and now you see them standing up, you can just imagine you're handing presents to people, you've been celebrating for three and a half days, and all of a sudden, news flash. And there are the cameras in Jerusalem, and here are these two guys that were dead for three and a half days standing on their feet. And the world is going to be absolutely stunned. And when they stand on their feet, they're going to hear a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here and they will ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies will see them. All across the world. International news. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. There will be people as a result of this that will repent and come to faith in the Lord. They will give glory to the God of heaven. But, verse 14 says, the second woe is past, the third woe is coming quickly. We've seen the seven seals and the judgments of Revelation 6. And then we've seen the seven trumpets and the judgments increase and intensify When the seventh trumpet blows, there is going to be a series of seven judgments. You can call them bold judgments, vile judgments, cup judgments, however you want to describe it. The word could be used of any of them. And they are going to hit not over a prolonged period of time. It's going to be like bang, 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 bang. They're going to happen in a very short time. And the world is going to be shocked, stunned, and reeling. And with the end of those seven vile judgments, the heavens are going to part. And Jesus Christ is going to descend with his saints. will be there. And he's going to win the victory of what we refer to as the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is not really a battle. It's a campaign. It's actually a campaign that begins in the middle of the tribulation. There are going to be things that are going to start happening with the rise of Antichrist, his proclamation that he is God, and there are going to be movements of great armies. And we've already seen this to a degree. We saw the two million horsemen that came from the east. And all of these things are going to be building up to a huge crescendo. And then when Christ comes, it says that he will slay them with the sword of his mouth. And the Bible tells us that the blood will run through the valley of Megiddo, five and a half feet deep for a couple hundred miles. Uh, We have stood, maybe some of you have been there, uh, on the hill of Megiddo and looked out over that plain that even Napoleon stood on and said, this would make the greatest battlefield in the world. And it will. And when the multitudes of armies that will gather from all over the world in that place are suddenly slaughtered in a moment of time, You remember in the first Indiana Jones movie when they opened the ark and you remember that the guys that were standing there, their flesh started melting off their frame. That's what it's going to be like. I thought they did a pretty good depiction. And then, of course, Christ is going to return. And this is why you and I should never allow events of our time to get us down. You know, we often say jokingly, but we should say it seriously. We've read the end of the book. We know the end of the story. And that should strengthen us and sustain us and give us hope and confidence and encouragement. Because how many warriors have gone into battle and fought and laid their lives down in the hope that after they die, their father, their mother, their wife, their children would at least live in freedom? They were willing to lay their life down. For you and I, we may not see this happen in our lifetime, but we're going to be back. And we're going to experience to the full and enjoy to the full the judgment of all evil and the establishment of the reign of Christ on the earth. So always keep that hope in front of your eyes. Never let yourself become uh, discouraged and downcast. I know it's hard. Uh, Sometimes it's very difficult. But uh, the more we fill our soul with God's Word, uh, we may suffer the persecution, we may suffer the rejection, that's the bitterness, but there will always be that sweetness uh, in the soul when we take in God's Word and depend on it. So we made it through the interlude, and when we get back from our next mission, we'll be getting ready to move into chapter 12, and we'll continue our study so father thank you for the time we've spent together this evening bless the things that we've studied to our hearts and souls keep us always looking upward help us always to be uh, uplifted and confident and assured that what you have promised is going to take place however many difficulties and hardships we may go through in this life we know the end of the story We know that we will be victorious and we will share in that glorious return of Jesus Christ. So keep us uplifted, encouraged and strengthened in that. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.